Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Chris Gambino, host for the channel. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Faith Kearns about the new book, Getting to the Heart of Science Communication, A Guide to Effective Engagement. Dr. Kearns, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much for having me and engaging with the material. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I loved it. Uh, And so typically we ask the authors to tell us a little bit about themselves, and and you do that in the front end of your book. I was wondering if you could do that for our audience. Sure. So um, again, I'm Faith Kearns. I'm a scientist and a science communications practitioner, and I work in the California Institute for Water Resources, which is located in the University of California's Division of Ag and Natural Resources, which is also known as Cooperative Extension, part of the land-grant system of the United States. Um, And I have been a science communicator for about 25 years or so. And in fact, I started doing communications work um, as an undergraduate. Uh, My work study uh, job was in the athletics department of my small university. And I jumped right into the sort of communications and marketing space at the age of about 18 and um, was a science major at the same time. And this was sort of in the the early to mid 90s when science communication didn't really have a name. Um, I didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, a lot of times at work, people would say, what are what are you doing being a science major um, when you're clearly so interested and good at marketing and communications? And then the same thing would sort of happen in my science classes where my teaching assistants and things would say, why aren't, you know, why don't you have a lab job? Um, clearly, you really love doing environmental science. And so it was a very strange fit during, during those years. And I just kept trying to do the things that I was really interested in. And I was very lucky that um, toward, you know, the, really the last couple months of uh, finishing my undergraduate degree, one of my professors handed me a uh, an old Telnet email that was an announcement for a uh, position with the Ecological Society of America in what was, and I think is still called their public affairs office. And that was sort of one of the the paths that one could take uh, in the science communication field since it, it, again, it wasn't really called that at that time. And so I ended up getting that position and uh, was able to sort of parlay it into two years spent working for the Ecological Society um, in doing science communication work. And again, even even right up to the end, I, I didn't use the term science communication. And that that sort of probably came to be more in, in the early 2000s. And so I really have been this practitioner for a very long time. Um, I've worked in academia. Um, I was a triple uh, AS uh, science and technology policy fellow with the State Department. Uh, I worked for a large NGO for many years. And so um, I've practiced science communication in many different contexts over those years. I appreciate giving us background and and you dive into a little bit more details in in the book itself. And so uh, if you want to get to know uh, Faith a little bit more, you can grab the book and and check out the introduction. And you do something intentionally, and so hopefully we can talk about it, but you divide the book up into three parts. You've got part one, which is the evolution of science communication, part two, the tools of science communication, and then part three, the future of science communication. I was wondering if you could start and kind of give us a little description about the evolution of science communication as you saw it. 
Sure. And, you know, I, I'm, I try to say very clearly in the uh, introduction and in the first chapter, you know, that there, there's a long history of science communication. I really appreciate some of the work that people have been doing that talks about science communication in sort of a human history context. Um, for me, I tried to speak to what I know, <laughs> which is really the last sort of 25 or 30 years primarily in North America. And I think there are trade-offs to, um, you know, to, to focusing that way. But I also, I feel really strongly about speaking to what I know. And I think the further I get out from that, the harder it becomes to really be authentic in what I'm describing. So, so what I've really focused on is, um, my experience over my career as a practitioner. This is really not a um, research review. It's it's not sort of an academic book. It's really a professional book, sort of more in, in line with a trade book, trying to describe the profession, right? I'm really speaking to this from a, the position of a practitioner. So um, my, my sort of main thesis of the book is that relating to other people has sort of been this key part of a communication challenge that's really been overlooked in scientific and sort of technical communication efforts. Um, so basically, my, the the thing that, that has happened is that science communication has really tended to focus on this idea of filling an information gap. And it it tended to, at least in my experience, focus a lot on sort of connecting elite scientists at elite institutions with elite journalists and decision makers at elite institutions, right? Like the ideal of being a science, good science communicator was sort of to come from a very um, – uh, an elite institution with tenure and and be able to talk to a, a well-known journalist at the New York Times, right? Like that was considered the epitome of science communication in a lot of ways. Um, and I found myself really on the, the margins of that kind of discussion about what science communication was, because in my own sort of on the ground direct experience, that really wasn't what I was doing or what I was dealing with. And I also recognized very early on I would never be that person, you know, <laughs> and so there had to be some other way through this field, you know, because I, I, I couldn't accomplish it basically the way that it was set up to be accomplished. And so um, what I try to argue in the book is that there's, there's been this sort of more ground level science communication practice that has existed at, at the same time as this sort of the major discourse um, but it really took a backseat to these more top-down approaches. And part of that is that, you know, I come from the cooperative extension um, system, which is really about connecting sort of university research with directly with communities. And so the skill set that I saw people needing was very different than, again, like, you know, whenever I would go to a presentation or a training on science communication, it was largely irrelevant really for what I was trying to do. And so, you know, we we sort of focused on this idea of the sage on the stage <laughs> model, right, where, um, you know, there's an expert who's kind of giving information in a very sort of performance-oriented way, uh, very good at speaking, has the right messages and the right framing and all of that kind of stuff. Um, you might think of something like a TED Talk or even just a, a sort of typical symposium lecture. Um, and so what we found with that is that, you know, while information is really important on, on its own, it doesn't actually offer much in, in the way of a theory of change. And so what I found was that just, you know, in reality, people communicate with each other in really complex ways um, and configurations and places. And so 
I think on some level people know that, but but at the same time, our our sort of discourse about science communication doesn't really reflect that most of the time. And even I struggle with that all the time because the models are not really set up in a lot of ways for for something different. But I do see this sort of shift toward what I call a sort of relational or relationship-centered or maybe even community-engaged model of science communication, which is much more focused about on the sort of people that we're in community with and the, the communities that they are a part of. And that kind of t- taking science communication that way is just a really different prospect than, than again, the way it was has been talked about for most of my career. Um, I also see a huge shift in the people doing the work. So again, long, you know, it's long considered the domain of tenured faculty, but uh, increasingly science communicators are in, in precarious and sort of less secure positions. I myself am in a, a two-year term renewable academic appointment, um, which is really challenging when you're working on what can be a very emotional and sort of contentious topics to not have any kind of job security. And I'm not saying that that, you know, I think if you put it in the context of just labor in general, um, clearly we're not the only ones facing that. But I do think that it really runs up against the way that we've tried to talk about science communication, which which I think people have always known can put people in really challenging positions. But the the way the labor market is these days, I feel like we do not take that into account seriously enough, right? So um there's a very diverse group of people doing science communication, um, and and many of them ha- have marginalized identities within the sciences, and 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 not only that, but are committed to a certain set of topics that might be challenging sort of notions of objectivity and and advocacy in science. And I interview many many people in the book who are sort of dealing with these challenges. Yeah, and you you mentioned interviewing folks in the book, and so we'll we'll get to some of that. And you already started to hint at some of the potential ways that this can get addressed. Then when we get into that last section, what the the future of science communication looks like, I want to I want to stay in kind of the evolution for a, a a minute longer. And in the front end, before I think even before you get into the evolution of science communication, you're in your intro, you lay out that you've tried uh, and you don't you haven't found it useful to kind of distinguish and separate terms and so you've been using the term science communication but then also people might think engagement outreach extension you mentioned the cooperative extension system can you elaborate a little bit more on kind of your enlightenment around the usefulness and and then essentially the uselessness of trying to distinguish those sure i mean i so i i wrote a paper um in a, a based on a talk I gave in about 2010. And I was really trying to sort of define engagement um, as separate from science communication because I was trying to get at this idea that that it is a relationship, right? And so when you say communication, again, in the the, the sort of major ways that people talk about science communication, it's often this sage on the stage model, right? A, a sort of one-way communication. And I had sort of hoped that the concept of engagement would start to imply this deeper sense of relationship, which would, again, get into talking about the skills that you need for engagement. Um what I've seen over time with that is just that it starts to get really pedantic in this way that um, isn't super helpful. I think 
there's many ways to define what I'm talking about. You could call it public scholarship. Uh, you could call it public engagement. You could call it science communication. And uh, the way that I tried to frame it under science communication is that there's, there just is already a large existing body of work on science communication. And rather than um, shaving off all these other pieces that are sort of extension or engagement, um, it ends up just bifurcating versus trying to kind of look at the commonalities between some of these methods. So for example, you know, I work in extension. There's a very long history of community engagement within extension that that is sort of the definition of extension. And yet I think there's been a huge divide between people who do extension and people who do science communication to the point that, um, people doing science communication in many ways keep reinventing the wheel of what something like extension already does. And that's not to say that the extension system is perfect. It is not. Um, I go into some of that in the book. But at the same time, I just think we lose out when people are constantly trying to shave off these pieces and say um, say they're different. You know, We just lose a lot in that process. And so even as somebody who tried to do that, I just have gone back to being like, let's just use the term that people are using, which is science communication. I appreciate the opening that up a little bit more for us. And from from my standpoint, from reading the text, from engaging the material uh, in and outside of the text, I, I come up with a, a bunch more questions um, as as this moved forward and as you continue to talk and as you continue to write about it. Uh, extension in and of itself. And, and I don't mean to push all the way to the end and, and the future of, of science communication. Um, but in terms of, I mean, a lot of what some of your interviewees discuss is kind of the lack of funding for the relational work. And mm-hmm. so that seems to be one of the big things that, that comes out of the book is that the there's a recognition from the people doing it on the ground that it, it is about being there, showing up, uh, and getting to know and, and building trust, right? Building trust from a place of that's real, not from a place of in trying to influence the the conversation. And yet maybe the funds aren't there. And so so I, I looked up um, the how USDA defines extension and it, mm-hmm. it's really still seemingly that kind of uh, one directional model where it's delivering science-based knowledge in an informal education program to people. Um, it to enable them to do something, yes, but maybe still as as defined by kind of the legislature, lacking the ability to kind of drive what you're talking about, to, to put the funds in, to do the relational work. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I, um, you know, one of the things that I have tried to to get at is that, and I think what some of the interviewees, you know, for example, Julian Reyes um, and others who kind of talk about how difficult it is to get the funding to do this work, um, is that they're actually it actually requires an infrastructure, right? And and to me, the closest that we have to that is extension. And I think people can tend to kind of overlook the vast, vast amount of infrastructure that it takes to carry out an extension program. And so um, recently, there have been several different pieces of writing where people are saying, you know, we need to create a new, say, climate 
program that is based on extension, but isn't extension. And, you know, I I look at that and I say, sure, I mean, I think the extension model is super helpful, but also creating a parallel system to extension is no small feat. I, I, it, it, it's baffling sometimes to, um, to have people say things like that and not take, you know, really take seriously what it takes to run extension, which is already itself underfunded. (laughs) And so, you know, for example, um, in the state of California, we have um, an office in almost every county in the state. There are several people who work for extension in those offices. There are people on the University of California campuses working in extension. There are people working within the system-wide office of the University of California, not to mention that we have our own sort of a cooperative extension main office, right? And so that infrastructure alone, just just the mechanics of paying for things, getting paid for things, you know, or when it comes to things like, say, organizing community meetings or or, um, trying to uh, set up virtual conferences, all of that, there are people working that have a function to help carry that work out. And we're talking thousands of people here, you know? And so- um, I, I definitely understand that the USDA page on cooperative extension is a little short. Um, I, I know I've referenced it myself, and I don't think it fully encompasses the, sort of the the work that gets done on the ground. So, for example, you might look at something like the Journal of Extension, which is sort of where people in extension publish, and you can see the vast amount of work getting done under the, under the umbrella of extension. So it's, it's a really interesting system. It, it obviously is, you know, there've been, um, some recent helpful, uh, pieces of research and articles about the, you know, in high country news, they published a piece called the, the land grab university talking about the history of, um, the cooperative extension system, the land grant system being built on stolen land. Um, There's certainly uh, other ways that that system needs to do reparations. And at the same time, um, I I would hate to kind of throw the whole thing out because in addition to those sort of foundations, there just is this over 100 years of practice and just sort of pragmatic focus on how you connect research with the people whose lives it affects. Yeah. And you, and you dive into the extension system in, in the text. And so I appreciate you elaborating on that. And, and we'll, we'll continue to come back to some of these questions about what, what do we do? Um, recognizing that there's, there's good and there's things that need change in a lot of how science is getting communicated. So as we, as we kind of move forward, as we move out of the the evolution of science communication. As you noted, um, you make this this point that uh, it's relational is kind of where we're going, uh, leaving the the monologue, um, leaving the the one way communication of kind of top down approach and doing more participatory, collaborative uh, engagement oriented conversations, communication and, and discourse. And so as we move into that second part of the text, this is a place where um, you you brought into a bunch of other fields to to discuss kind of what's what's lacking, but you recognize them as tools. And so let me point to kind of how you divide out this section. You've got relating and relationship, as you've mentioned, uh, and then you've got it broken out into listening, working with conflict, and understanding trauma. 
Uh, if you will, could you talk about some of the people you brought into this part two of, of the book and kind of how you started to recognize these as being tools that uh, are necessary? Sure. So this has been, you know, a long evolution for me. Um, I, I talk about in, in the introduction how I really had my own sort of reckoning where I was working in a wildfire research center at UC Berkeley and some colleagues and I were at a fire safety demonstration day on a, on a Saturday in Northern California. And, um, you know, we were sort of giving our, uh, spiel about how, the research that we had that can help homes to uh, not burn down during wildfires. And, you know, I, for whatever day, for whatever reason, was really sort of open to what was happening in the room that day and could just feel people getting extremely uncomfortable. And, you know, I didn't actually didn't know entirely what was happening, but I was very um, lucky in that this, this man came up to me after the presentation and, you know, in, in words that were not quite as direct, because of the time, you know, we, we weren't talking so much about trauma, but he was essentially saying to me, the way that you all presented this information was re-traumatizing for us. Do you not understand that we just had a large wildfire here a couple of months ago? And so many of us already have faced directly the kinds of things that you guys are talking about just recently. And it took me a year or two to really sit with, um, with what 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 he was telling me and uh and that really forced me to rethink the way that I was doing science communication because clearly the way that we had presented things was was harmful um and we didn't get it you know and I, and I think today that might be kind of easy to look at and say that we should have gotten it, but that just really wasn't a part of the dialogue at the point, at that point. And, um, you know, I will say the the wildfire season in California has become something else since 2017. And so people recognize this in a, in a whole new way these days. But, but what happened with me was running up against the, that and seeing like, I needed, I need a different skill set. And there was literally nowhere to turn. And um, just by force of of luck, I have a very dear friend, Gail Silverstein, who I interview in the book, who's a um, a lawyer who teaches clinical law at University of California Hastings Law School. And, you know, we just started talking a lot about how to survive <laughs> these kinds of careers. And it turned out that lawyers were a little further along, at least, you know, the, some of the ones that she was in community with. Um, and And part of that turned out to be because they talk about the practice of law. And I started to think about that in, in the context of science communication and sort of being like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I really am a practitioner and I'm facing practitioner level challenges. And through some, some papers that she shared with me, I found my way to, um, you know, the way that, that, practicing medical professionals also talk about their work, which is quite separate than how, say, a medical researcher might talk about their work and just kind of fell down this rabbit hole of um, information for practitioners about how to deal with very difficult situations, right? So in, in law, it might be just dealing with conflict constantly. Um, in in medicine, it might be how you uh, deliver bad news to a patient, right? And so through that, I just, yeah, I just met a whole new set of people and the tools that they were talking about were much, much, much more useful to me in my daily life. And so that became things like 
listening, um, really deeply trying to uh, tolerate and work with conflict. And then over the years, as I've seen the topics that I work on, again, sort of water, wildfire, and climate change, um, really in California, um, causing a lot of trauma to people, right? Like we are at the point now where if people smell smoke in this state, for the most part, you know, you have a, you know, you ha- you have a slight panic attack, and so that's that's the context that we're doing this sort of communication about science in, and um, and even today, I could look at at the way we're communicating science on some of those topics and and question whether. Um, it's being done in a way that really is considerate of of the the trauma and the conflict, and so um, really diving deeply into some of those tools uh, has again just requested something entirely different of me as a professional than the normative discourse on science communication. Yes, and these these four chapters kind of lay out. And you kind of go into with the interviews, but then kind of link people to all these different places that kind of feed into the, the listening, the dealing with conflict, the the kind of understanding trauma. And I want to point to uh, some of the things you, you note. Um, one of the big ones in kind of the relating is this notion of kind of uh, curiosity and you you use and the language you use is is really telling talking about sitting with stuff and talking about uh, being in community with and so um, I, I found that that language kind of five ten years ago people were looking at me strangely I mean it, it was an uncomfortable type of language but it's becoming mm-hmm. more as as kind of mindfulness becomes less taboo and and dealing with kind of our own personal uh, lives becomes less taboo in kind of more of a professional academic setting, it seems that language is becoming more normalized and, and easier for people to relate with. And so in my own in my own personal experiences, um, I've been asked about kind of I, I as as kind of a scientist who tries to break down the world and, and ask questions is curious about things, right? The scientific method in and of itself is is curiosity. Uh, why I can't be more curious kind of in my, my own son's behavior, right? And mm-hmm. so this notion of curiosity has been coming up again and again in my own life. And I recognize it showing up in your book as a place of like, how do we engage with people? How do we, as a scientist, be less curious about answering the question and more curious about the other person, the other people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, Rehana Maktoufi, who's a science communication researcher and practitioner uh, talks a lot about her experience with curiosity, working um, in a planetarium and kind of the role of curiosity in keeping relationship open instead of closing it down. Um, And Raquel Holmes, who is a scientist who also is um, uses improvisation and other tools for science communication, and also really thinks about science communication as a a relational um, field, also talks a lot about how can we be curious about each other as a, a as a way to sort of overcome you know, some of the deep rifts that we find ourselves in. And so, yeah, I think curiosity in and of itself, you know, and, and if if you're at all familiar with therapy and therapeutic tools, it certainly comes up as like, you know, instead of making judgment about things, can we be curious about them, right? So I think it's a absolutely a valuable tool in science communication. And you point to, and I, and I've, I was excited, I even 
reached out to to friends and family and and showed them a picture of the text where you reference nonviolent communication because it's mm-hmm. something that I've brought into my life and and, and reread Marshall Rosenberg's work over and over again and. I mean, understanding is one thing, practicing it is a vastly different thing that I still daily uh, struggle with, yes. but I appreciate the recognition of it. And and I'll tell you, and hopefully you've got some insight for me, me but also those listening is how, how do we, how do we practice it in a, in a world that may not be as familiar with it? I know when I, you, and you step, you, you use language that does the four parts, right? And, and as I've done that in the past and have been, uh, very conscious and and kind of mindful of what's going on in my surroundings. Uh, that language, using the words like "I need," uh, have got turned against me in terms of like now I'm needy. So I, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've got experience using the language in a in a science communication context, but I'd I'd love to hear some advice on that. Yeah, I mean, I I think for me, I try to not get super fixated on a specific method. You know, I think the nonviolent communication methodology is super interesting and important to science communication. And um, I also am sort of pragmatic in that I feel like if it, if it isn't working for you, um, maybe, maybe being less sort of tied to, (laughs) tied to it as a, as a, so, so what I would say about that, right, is, is with anything, we can get super tied to like, I'm trying to carry out something that somebody else isn't participating in. And that even if it's nonviolent communication, if the other party isn't willing, that's not a relational communication, right? Um, and so, so it's a very interesting thing where, uh, the way that I deal with a lot of things is to try as much as I can, um, because there are times when it's actually not appropriate, but for the most part, I try to think relationship first, right? And so if I, if I put relationship first, if the other person isn't in a place to reciprocate, um, then, then, then you have to go somewhere else, if that makes sense, right? So if you take the overall, the overall spirit of the thing, um, which is to be in relationship and to take that part of it seriously, then, then you kind of have to be where other people are. However, I also think that given the the time that we're in, and and probably always this has been true, um, there are there are times when you kind of have to also end relationships or put them aside. So I'm not suggesting that anybody um, participate in extremely one-sided relationships, right? Uh, in any, in any context. And that can kind of come up when you're thinking about things like um, climate denialism, for example, where, you know, y- you may want to persuade somebody, but if, if it's just this sort of one-sided thing, then that that really to me goes against the spirit of trying to talk about how important relationship is, right? So whenever I start to drop off into this thing that's like, I again, I'm asserting my goal as the the way that we're going to communicate, it, be, it, it becomes less about consent and all of the things that I think are important in relationship, if that makes sense. Yes, thank you. I, yes. And so now- now that we've got these these topics and you're talking about these things that might be new for some people or might might have come up in the past and, and you've got all these tools you listed and then, and then now you just discussed 
you've got to kind of navigate them when they work, yes. when they don't work, they're not appropriate all the time. Yep. Um, so there might be questions coming up. Okay. I'm a scientist. I, I was trained to do ask and answer these questions. And now there's this whole new area of things I need to learn. And this drives us to kind of the future. And, and you discuss some of the ways that maybe we can start to incorporate this. Maybe we can start to uh, help the next generation have these these skill sets or at least be mindful uh, of their usefulness and and kind of the re- relational work. Let's dr- let's drive in that direction and start talking about some of the ways that you see this uh, coming to be. Now that we've recognized it, you've you've interviewed people that are doing it and showing uh, in these scenarios that they they recognize the need for it. There was success in in utilizing some of these tools. Now, how do we how do we bring this to be for kind of the next generation? Yeah, I mean that's a, it's a very very tough question, and you know one of the things that I try to focus on is is the training model, um, which I think this is very tough, and I'm I'm not somebody who's directly involved with uh, you know training graduate students. But I do think when I really, really look at the field that we are entering a space that is more similar to me, um, to something like clinical law training um, or medical training, where essentially you you have a track of people who are becoming practitioners and who are trained to become practitioners and who are taught by practitioners, right? Um, that's really something that is missing in, in most of the rest of the sciences. So- even though this is the future of the book, it also harkens back to one of the chapters that's really much more about sort of the labor crisis that we are facing in science, which again has been a really missing part to me of the science communication discourse is just about who is doing this work. Um, There's been a long, long, long focus on incentivizing science communication for scientists. And what I try to argue is we don't really need to focus on incentivizing. We need to sort of focus on rewarding and protecting the actual people who are doing the work, which for some reason we have really tended to overlook in the science communication field, like who is actually doing this work. And and as I said before, it's mostly folks who are in more precarious positions who um, often are doing it as volunteer work or uh, on contract, short-term contract positions, all sorts of stuff that makes it very difficult to do what, again, is very emotional, contentious, difficult work. And so, you know, what I'm trying to argue in many ways is for a reorganization that almost seems impossible <laughs> in some ways, um, but I also think it's it's slowly happening, you know, regardless of what... Um, what the overall thrust of of the way things are headed. So, for example, I talk with you know a graduate student at UC Davis who um, is who was able to sort of stop you know midstream and, and do some science policy and science communication training in the middle of her doctoral program, and that that kind of thing I think is the future. And so how we actually develop that into practitioner training within a graduate school context where the um, the way that people end up getting sort of paid to to do graduate work is through doing research often, like being research support, doing their own research, right? So those are two very different incentive systems, two very different um, payment mechanisms. So how that begins to gel, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. And the ways that it's happening now are largely informal. But I would, I would really like to see a larger discourse around training practitioners um, in practice, <laughs> in in the sciences. 
Yeah, so let's t- let's talk about some of those those mechanisms. I've got some questions that came up as I was thinking about and and taking your notions of the the future and piecing them together with some experiences and 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 thinking about all these things coming together and I and this is what I appreciate from the onset you say something along the lines of your your goal is to further a conversation not mm-hmm. be the last word and mm-hmm. and I think your book furthered so much of the conversation for me in in making me and forcing me to connect all these ideas of yeah, I want to see this happen. How do we do it? Mm-hmm. And then and then all the way back to like the critic they trained into me, I'm starting to ask questions about. Um, so Julia and I were in the same IGRIT program. And I think when I when I you and I spoke before starting the recording, I mentioned that once I got exposed to some of these ideas in my in my early training, in my doctoral program. I, I was never going back to the bench. Um, right. and, and that for me was one of the hardest things. It was uncomfortable. It was scary. And, and I've never really gone back. So I, I'm trained in, in, in a specific field, but I'm never going to be the experts in mm-hmm. that field. But, mm-hmm. I, but I now have this, these concepts and I'm, I'm wrestling with these tools that you're talking about. And so I have knowledge of the the science that that's requires that's required of me, but I also have these skills, or at least an ability to want to learn more and and a recognition that they exist and they're useful, and we need to have them to to kind of translate knowledge um, to the populace. That that's scary for me, and and you note that scariness, and you note that scariness particularly from a laborer perspective, mm-hmm. uh, with not having any real um, security, job security, or real mm-hmm. jobs that are there, uh, they're starting to become things. But the, one of the scariest things for me was, you know, I've, I guess, from my perspective, having been trained in that type of manner, I, I would call myself a skilled generalist. And mm-hmm. I find that to be like, there's no job description I see on the internet that says we're looking for a skilled generalist uh, per se. And so that's been, that, that was one of the scariest things. I don't know if, if you've wrestled with that uh, notion and kind of how do we, if we are going to train, and I liked your idea of the, the dual degree potential, right? Mm-hmm. You mentioned there's mm-hmm. a potential to have a dual degree, uh, but that's the thing I'm finding and I'm wrestling with, and I'm hoping we can have further that conversation here is if we recognize these tools are important and they're not necessarily a part of the training yet. Um, but we've got scientists that, that want to maybe move in this practitioner direction. What does that look like to kind of the trade-off between expertise and generalist? And, and, and does that even matter, I guess? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. And I, I don't totally know the answer to that. I mean, I think I, I can speak from my own experience that the interplay between my expertise and my generalism is um, is helpful. You know, I, I it's it's very scary to let go of the things that that you have expertise in, and I have I've had to let that go in various positions, um, only to return to one that actually is pretty aligned with what I'm trained in at this point. But um, I definitely know the fear involved. I've I've gone and worked um, in, say, fisheries issues and things that are not my direct training that um, 
you know, I always felt like a, a, a bit um, over my head in. <laughs> and at the same time, what I was being asked to do on those topics didn't really require in a certain way that I that I know those things deeply because that I wasn't engaged in the research piece, right? So I, I, I go back and forth on that. And I've certainly had people give me the advice that um, having one thing that you have deep expertise in is still super helpful. And I, I tend to agree with that, but I also... Um, I think it's very challenging to find positions. So if we talk just about jobs, right? Um, I think that part is always so, so sticky because I think for most people who want to do this kind of work, um, the job descriptions that you will see will not describe what you want to do. I, I have never actually found a job description that was laid out for me in a way that I envisioned the work going. Instead, what I've had to do in virtually every position I've ever had was to take a job that was close enough and adapt it over time. And that, you know, that again has its pros and cons because in in a way what you end up doing is sort of two jobs at the same time, one of which is the one you're hired to do. And the other is proving that the way that you want to do things is actually a feasible way to do things. So that creates a lot of pressure <laughs> um, on, on a single person, you know, um, and, and, I talk a lot in in the book about just also that, you know, because there is no real sort of professional society that say every everybody who's a science communicator is generally a part of, uh, you know, just based on my experience with, say, the Ecological Society of America, which was for many years my professional society, um, there's no real place to even talk about this stuff, right? Like these are all kind of backroom conversations, hallway conversations that people might have um, at a science conference where there happens to be a science communication session. And so that it, that also kind of inhibits the ability to um, create a a way forward, I think. And and I definitely understand the hesitancy of, of creating a new professional society, but it's very challenging at the same time to think about how you, how you start to move things forward without even a sense of who the other people in your field are. You know, it's all very, very, very informal. So I think, you know, it, it's such a multi-pronged challenge in that people are looking for jobs that may not on paper exist. Um, I think a lot of the, the folks who hire people to do science communication, it's it's not their specialty. And so um, the way that even a job description is written or the skill level that people are looking for is very mismatched. Um, I, I see a lot more beginner science communication jobs that are like, come to our social media, you know, um, and, and where you go as a particularly as an advanced practitioner is, is very confusing. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, all I can say is that I think where you're at reflects where the field is at and, um, how we, how we proceed. I, that's why, that's why I say I, I don't have all the answers, right? Like this is, it's such a big challenge. And so what I hoped in the book to do was at least create pathways for the kind of conversation that I've been wanting to have my whole career, which is the kind that we're actually having right now, which means wrestling with a lot of, um, a lot of, I don't knows because I still really feel like we're at the beginning. And I, and the book does it and I hope more and more people pick it up and I hope that it continues to be a conversation. And um, regardless of a society forms, I think that getting people talking is going to move this forward and, and hopefully 
bring bring funding with it um, yeah. in some regard, planning funds, some type of funding to to put people in a room and have these conversations to mm-hmm. to redesign potentially different graduate uh, postgraduate programs. Um, who knows? But I, I the book was necessary. It's it's a perfect time for it. Uh, I know that in my own life, all of the ideas that you're you're you put to the to the table in terms of tools are things that continue to come up in the the last decade and, and even recently. And and I'm forced to to see them and use them in my own life and then also as a profession, also as communication uh, and relating and listening to to farmers who is kind of the pop agriculturalists are the people that mm-hmm. I work with. Mm-hmm. And so I appreciate it. I think it's perfect opportune for where we are and and hopefully more and more people pick this book up and, and it becomes a bigger and bigger conversation about we we had this notion and and it's time for us to put down that old idea and start to recognize that we need to bring in these new tools. Yeah, thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate um, you, as I said, engaging deeply with the material and the fact that it's raising more questions for you than answers is actually uh, a perfect uh uh, tribute to the book. <laughs> That's what I, that was my intention as unsatisfying as that can be sometimes. Yeah. Questions, more and more questions, mm-hmm. I, but I appreciate you. It, it worked well. And so I know we've taken up a, a ton of your time, but we've got kind of the the famous last question and, and we all want to know kind of what are you working on now? Well, for now, um, I am mostly working on getting the book out there. Um, And it's a very interesting time because you're kind of, you know, wanting to talk about the ideas in the book. And at the same time, I've been deeply uh, uh, working on this for a couple of years and really for, for probably a good dozen years, at least before that. And so in many ways, I um, am looking at what comes next as well. And so there's some ideas kind of trying to gel in my own head uh, that have probably more to do with um, now that I I see some of these challenges, uh, how how can I put them even more deeply into practice? So for example, as we face a, another drought in the Western US and and people are talking about wildfire, you know, what what how do we communicate about these issues in a way that actually is um helpful and not harmful to people. And, and as, as sort of easy as that might sound on some level, it's actually a very, very difficult uh, thing to try to take on. So that's really what I'm thinking about a lot these days. Yeah, much needed. And, and I really hope that folks in the West continue to, to apply and learn from you and, and those other practitioners that you've engaged in the book. Um, so I, I really, Faith, I really appreciate the ability to speak with you and, 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 you joining us and sharing kind of your insight. And and for those listening, I really hope that you have the opportunity to pick up the book. There's so much more nuance and details in there uh, and things that will get you wrestling other than what you've heard here. And so thank you so much again, Faith, for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.